This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. You are going to love this week's guest if you're not already smitten. He's the co-host of the cult favorite podcast, Las Culturistas. Ding dong, Las Culturistas calling. He's killing it on Saturday Night Live. Oh no, babe, you cannot stop TikTok. We took videos and we made them shorter. We took babies and we made them cuter. We took lip syncs and we made them straight. (laughs) Not to mention all sorts of guest spots on hit comedy shows like Aquafina's Nora from Queens. Your dumplings look like the Pillsbury Doughboy got hate crime. And the new Girls by Beba. I was shook. This is real pee. That's right. He's Bowen Yang. Wow. Thank you for having me. This is um. This is very thrilling. We got the full Bowen picture from how we developed his great sense of humor to how his sketch about an iceberg became an internet sensation. But we started by talking about his success and what he makes of it. I don't know. I don't know, Katie. I mean, like, what do you make of it? Like, how should I be? I feel like you've talked to so many people that you must have some mental model of, like, what the best mindset is for people. Well, um, I don't know. I feel like you were kind of destined for this moment and for this opportunity. No, 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 no. (laughs) Just reading all about you and your life and, you know, the fact that your high school voted you most likely to appear on SNL, which is so funny. And it's just, listen, it's just sort of everything kind of came together. And so I hope you're enjoying it. I hope yes. you're not so neurotic that you can't be like, wow, this is pretty effing cool. Well, I thank you for saying that because I think that has that has been something that's like not held me back in any way, but I, whatever, I mean, I, you, you probably can relate to this. They asked me, um, to write this like commencement speechy thing for this, like, um, whatever this like podcast that's like putting out commencement speeches. And I wrote something and I thought about, I thought back to my own commencement, like my graduation experiences. And the, the, the theme for both of those was that I was not present, that I was just living in anxiety about what was coming next. And I wish that I had sort of like understood that 
you know, commencement ceremonies like that are important for the, uh, like they're important unto themselves. Like they're important because you don't, because life doesn't give you opportunities to like ceremoniously celebrate yourself in any way or like where you're at. And, and I think I have very, con- I wrote that and then I consciously thought, wow, maybe I should do this. Like this should apply to me now, right? Like I should be kind of sitting very still whenever I can with the idea that like, wow, this is, this is real. I, I mean, this is really special and I am living this exceptional thing that I think has happened both serendipitously and fortuitously, but also through, through work. And like, there's, there's, there's a way to think about that in some balanced way. And then my, my, my parents were in town this weekend. Um, I saw your mom on Saturday yeah. night. She was so cute. I loved her uh, kissing you and then trying to purell your cheek. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good beat. It was a really cute. That bit. was cute. And, and, Did you guys come up with that together? That was something that the writers of the, of the cold open, Sudi Green and Fran Gillespie did. And they, I mean, they, they had to write some quick little comedy. I beat know. For all they did the a moms. good job. They did a great job. And I mean, my, my, my mom had a blast and she got a lot of compliments from, from people at the show being like, I mean, prop work. That is, that is not easy. That's very <laughs> technical um, on TV. And so, but yeah, I mean, she was in town and, and she was even, she turned to me yesterday. She goes, Bowen, you're very lucky to to be doing what you're doing and I, I and I go yeah you're right like I I kind of I have gotten to some like jaded points in in recent in the past year that that I've thought oh god like this is I'm, I'm just I'm sort of like just kind of going through the motions sometimes and thinking that it's not something that I I'm doing with the enthusiasm that I want to have. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I also think the pandemic sort of screwed everybody up. So I think you should give yourself a pass on kind of feeling (laughs) some ambivalence, right? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, totally. I just, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I, but you're right. Like, this is, I, I, I should be sitting with this with as little neuroses as possible or or, or in some healthy positioning where I don't have to think about, oh God, do I deserve this? Do I this? Do I that? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, just enjoying it because, you know, it's interesting because the work is work, but it's also work that clearly you have been sort of training for in one way or another your whole life. And sure. I, I, in preparing for this interview, I loved hearing sort of your really fascinating life story about your mom and dad. They're both born in China, yes, mm-hmm, and both mm-hmm. very accomplished, right? Your dad's an engineer, uh, yes. a sort of a, with mining expertise. Your mom you is an it. OBGYN. Mm-hmm. Um, and you all came to this country. Where did where did they first move? So they first moved, they met in China and they first moved to Brisbane, Australia, where my dad was getting um, his doctorate. And then at that point, my mom sort of made the sacrifice to... Um, I mean, her 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 um her license didn't just transfer over when she when she moved out of China, and so she was sort of just making sure that we were all kind of that the children were, were being raised for a while before she got back into work. When we moved to Canada, we moved to Kingston, Ontario, and then and then um, Montreal, um, and then that's where my sister and I were uh, up until we were up until I was like eight or nine, and then we moved to. Uh, Denver, Colorado in 99. And then I grew up there until end of high school and then moved here in New York to New York for college. And I've just been here ever since. But yeah, it's th- then that that's like a really 
crazy little Commonwealth pinball right. thing that they've played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and your parents, do your parents still live in Aurora or where do they live now? They're in Aurora. My mom just retired a month ago and I, it's looking good on her. And she, but now, so now she's in Atlanta um, with my sister and she's raising two kids there. And so my, and so my mom's helping out. And so it's, 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 it all, she just seems, uh, I mean, she seems like genuinely happy and relaxed and in a, in a good state that I haven't really sort of been able to like see up close in a while because of, because of work and because of the pandemic. And so, yeah, I mean, like I, I, I took in a moment of gratitude last night when I, you know, went out with them for, for, for dinner. And I was just like, oh, okay, like I can just sort of soak this moment in too, where like I see my mom and dad being sort of happy and it all sort of aligned correctly after like a whole life to my lifetime of just like hardship and sacrifice and them letting me know that like, you know, you wouldn't have been born. You're the second child. You wouldn't have been born if we had stayed in China, you know, like they, they sort of, they don't like very spitefully remind me of that, but they, but every now and then my mom will be like, you know, sometimes I think about what would have happened, what our lives would have been like if we, if your dad and I had stayed in China and, and then that would have meant that I wouldn't have been born with um, the one child only policy. And so every now and then that like kind of really, messes with me on, on an existential level. But then I think, oh, but then I should, that just means I should be even more grateful, you know, or, or whatever. I should just experience this on a sensory level. Let's talk about growing up because were you always the funny kid, Bowen? Were you the guy, were you the class clown? Well, I was, it was something that was like assigned to me in a way, or it was just like mirrored. Like someone would tell you, someone would tell me, Oh, you're you're funny or you're like you're being a little like you're being the class clown in a way that that was either pejorative or complimentary and so because we would move around a lot and even like in canada we switched i mean I, I switched schools once or twice uh it was a thing where you had to adapt uh, and as a kid that's very sort of tumultuous but then the move from canada from quebec where i spoke french in school and english was like the tertiary language, literally, because it was French in school, you know, Mandarin at home, uh, and then English every now and then when you would like run into, like when a babysitter would come over or something. Um, but then moving from Quebec to Denver was this 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 really intense shock. I know it seems like Canada and, and the US are similar enough, but it was this thing where I was like, oh gosh, like this is a whole new culture, you know, um, and I, I think I realized that even as a kid, um, because I was moving to, to Colorado right after Jean-Benet Ramsey, which happened in Boulder and in Columbine. And I was like, Colorado is the place where the people get murdered. <laughs> and I was just like, so terrified, um, as like, you know, an eight year old, a nine year old that I was like, uh, I think I went to school. I remember the first day of school going into the fourth grade, just feeling anxious and just feeling like, um, just going into that kid logic of being like, well, you know, my mom's going to drop me off and then she's going to get into a car accident and I'm going to, you know, be an orphan. It's, it's, but you were only in fourth grade. So you, it, you, you were very cognizant of Jean-Benet Ramsey and Columbine at what, eight or nine years old? Yeah. Because I mean, it was all over the news. I mean, back then it was like all, it, Oh, you believe just, me. Cause I covered all that stuff. Of course. And, yeah. But that's interesting that it kind of uh, seeped into your mindset and made you anxious, understandably. Totally. And it was this thing that, um, you know, teachers in Montreal would be like, 
well, Bowen, Bowen's moving to Colorado, to the U.S., and we all know what happened there recently. It was kind of like that. I mean, <laughs> very morbid, very, 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 very sad and scary. Good luck, <laughs> Bowen. Good luck. Go get him. Go get him. Go get him. And then, so then I remember going to school, um, not knowing how to make friends, not really being able to speak the language. And then um, by like the second week at recess, I had cheered up enough girls who were, who, were, who were like crying because someone had said something mean to them or something and that I'd like run over there and like just try to like get them, get them to stop crying or something. And just because it made me upset to see them so, so upset. And uh, that by like the third week of school, uh, this girl, Victoria Rosales, and I've, I've run into her recently and <laughs> I, I've told her this story, but she was like, Bowen, you're f- so funny. And that was like this like, someone conferring upon me this identity that I was, you know, funny or I could like turn something on to, to make someone laugh or, or, or something, elicit that out of them. And then, and then from there, it like, I really kind of attached myself to that in a deep way. And I was like, well, I, this is my purpose in life <laughs> is to like do this. Um, but it sounds like it was mixed with a lot of empathy, you know, that you were very conscious of, when people were suffering, like a lot of kids probably wouldn't go over there and help someone who had been hurt. So that's kind of an, an unusual quality for a little boy, especially, I don't mean to, to gender cast or whatever, but um, I think it takes a certain emotional intelligence to kind of pick up on those things and to go to someone's rescue that way. So you did have empathy along with the ability to make people laugh, right? Mm, oh my gosh. I mean, the, the the fact that you are observing this out of like immediately kind of picking up on this after I, I, after I sort of share that is, is why you're Katie Couric. But anyway, um, but yeah, <laughs> I guess, I, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. So you, you became sort of the funny guy and you not only became the funny guy, but you also were obsessed with SNL. What, at what age did you start watching the show? I mean, I probably uh, a too young an age because it was right when I moved to the U.S. and I I don't believe we got it in Canada back then in the nine in the late nineties because I didn't hear about it until I moved to the U.S. and then I forgot who was the host one day, um, one one week. But my sister told me about um, I'm going over to my friend's house to watch this show called SNL. And I was like, I haven't heard of that. And she goes, Oh, it's the show where. It's, you know, little comedy skits is how she described it. And, uh, you know, there's a celebrity each week that comes in and is, is, in, is in all of them. And I was like, that sounds so cool. And then a friend at school had also just been a fan of the show. And this was back in like the Sherry O'Terry, Will Ferrell, Chris Kattan era. And so it was all very broad and big and wacky. And Don't do drugs. Woo! <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, the Spartans, like, that was like, <laughs> that was like my way in, and you know, and, um, and I was Charlize Theron. That was my first episode that I ever saw. Charlize Theron was the, was the host. Ladies and gentlemen, Charlize Theron. I, I, and I went over to my friend's house to watch it on a Saturday night. Uh, it was the neighbor's house. And so I think my parents, like, I mean, my parents, it was just a dinner party situation. And then it was Saturday. And so we stayed up and watched it. And I thought, wow, this is, this is so cool. And it's live. I mean, it, it just, it was just so many, it, it was just such a, get me up to speed on what American pop culture was because I wasn't super tapped into it growing up, even in, just in Canada before we moved. 
wasn't super tapped into it because my parents, you know, forbade cable. They were like, no cable, no TV, whatever, all that stuff. And then on Saturdays, I would get to watch. And that was sort of my way of like learning and getting the download on like what was happening in the world, you know? And did when did you think, God, I want to be on that show? I would love to be in that ecosystem of SNL. I mean, like with, I mean, like pretty immediately, but I never, I would never even- Allow cons- yourself? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even conceive of the idea of I would be, that, that, that I would be on the show and not for any like representation reason necessarily, but just because I was like, I, I don't know, like it's such a big chasm uh, of like, of like knowing, of, of having the idea of, oh, I want to be on SNL to being on SNL. Like I did not know. I remember going on, I, I was curious about it enough to like go on to like online, like message boards on like IMDB or something back when they had message boards. Um, right. And it was just looked into what the audition process was or researched like what Will Ferrell's audition process was, you know, and seeing that, you know, you had to sort of go through uh, a, a program, some some like developmental program at some comedy theater to, to, to get noticed by a scout. I was just like, that sounds so foreign to me. And I have no idea what the, the entry point is. And so I'm just going to maybe resign myself to being like a fan from afar for the rest of my life. And I was completely okay with, I had like accepted that pretty, pretty quickly, I want to say. Featuring Bowen Yang. Turns out he didn't have to accept that after all, did he? We're going to get to SNL a little bit later in our conversation, but coming up, conversion therapy and Bowen's complicated coming out story. That's right after this. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Before you go to NYU, you're in high school. 
Mm -hmm. and your mom and dad discovered that you're gay. Yeah. And uh, tell me about what that was like. And I'm curious if, if it was, you know, the, if there was any kind of cultural uh, aspect to them understanding, you know, your, your sexual preference mm -hmm. uh, because of being from China and just, I, I'm fascinated by that. Can you set the stage and, and yes. how they discovered it and what happened? Yeah, yeah. I might I might be um, bouncing back and forth between some, some things that come back to me, but I uh, came home one day, it was senior year of high school, and I'd come out to friends sophomore year of high school at that point, um, and then especially after my sister left for college. My sister goes to NYU, so then at that point, she's not there to like be this, you know, liaison between me and my parents. I mean, she, cause she would sort of keep an eye on me at school and, and sort of keep me straight. I mean, figuratively speaking, but, yeah. um, <laughs> I, uh, so then it, by the time she left for college, I felt some like self-definition, self-awareness sort of kind of happening. Um, and then was like, you know, I'm gay. I can tell my friends I'm going to keep it a secret from my parents just because I knew that this was something that they would have um, a hard time understanding because of this cultural element of coming from China where um, you'd watch a movie or something, there'd be a gay character or, or a gay kiss or something. And I'd hear my dad especially say, this is, so, this is crazy. Like we never, we never had people like this in China. And he, and he, and he, he grew up in, you know, in a very rural area. Um, I mean, like these, like this arid farm in the middle of the desert and, uh, in, in, in mainland China. And so um, it's not that he, but, but, but to him, I mean, he sort of understood as fact that like there were no gay queer people at all where he grew up, but it's just, it, it, he still has a hard, I still have a hard time explaining to him. No, it's not that there weren't gay people where he grew up at. It's that you just didn't know about them. Um, uh, or they kept it a secret or something. And I, I come home one day from, from class senior year. And meanwhile, I mean, the signs were there, the signals were there. I was, I was big into theater. I, I, you know, I, most of my friends were just like, just had a certain sensibility about them. And so I came home one day, uh, to an open chat window that I, um, had just like, just, it was a, it was a very salacious, not so clean chat window that I had open. And then my, my mother had printed out this, this exchange and sort of, had me go through it and just be like, you, you, you have to explain this. And then pretty quickly, um, my dad comes home and it's just me. It's just, it's just the three of us at home. My sister's off in college. So it's the three of us just having these long, long, painful, painful conversations where I just had to be like, yeah, this is, this is, this is it. This is who I am. And it wasn't me coming out on my own terms, but at that point I just had to own up to it because there'd been like suspicions before that my parents, like, there, there'd been things that my parents just kind of decided to look the other way on. Um, but this was finally a time where I thought, you know, I'm about to go, I'm about to go to college. I don't want to keep secrets from them. I've been found out, but I might as well own up to it. How did they react? Do you remember? I had not seen my father cry since 
I'd only seen my father cry once, and that was when uh, my grandfather passed away, when his father passed away. And then I, I was coming home to him and my mother crying every single day for like two weeks and just being like, and just truly feeling that um, viscerally I had done something wrong, that I had like caused them pain and pain at a level that I had not seen from my dad. Um, And just like, you know, Asian soap opera heaving sobs from both of them. <laughs> and just, Which must and just, have been really painful for you as a high school senior to to witness that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and so and so I mean with that with that sort of context and with the context of them being these two scientifically minded people and these these immigrants who had like sacrificed so much. I mean, the idea of me moving to a country where I didn't speak the language and I would be like automatically in the minority, it just is wild to me, wild to me. And, and, and I didn't take that for granted back then. And then they also were solutions oriented people. And so to them, I mean, my dad didn't understand sort of the, what, what the cultural forces behind what conversion therapy meant, but he was, he was out here looking for solutions and he, he came across a solution one day I come home a couple weeks after I, uh, 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 you know, the chat window had been printed out. I came home to my dad presenting to me this sheet of paper, this, this website that he'd printed out of this, you know, therapist who, uh, was based out of Colorado Springs, um, who specialized in this, in this conversion therapy. And he said, we are going to go down there once a week. And it's a it's a two hour drive two hour drive each way, but we're gonna go that we're gonna go there once a week, um, and you're gonna talk to this man, and it'll be for eight sessions. It'll be through the summer, and the ultimatum was if you if you go to these sessions, then you can go to college out of state. And I all I had wanted was to was to leave Colorado for school and just and be a New Yorker, be in a, I mean my choices were between uh, UCLA and NYU. Those were my final two choices, and then they had kind of given me this ultimatum to be like you can go to those schools if you go to this this therapy. And again, I mean, I but I also want to just like put that in context. It was not like a threat. It was just like please just do this for us. I mean, it was it was the dynamic of this was was constantly shifting. It was either I was I was doing something wrong or that they were or that they were in more pain than I was. I mean, it was very hard to gauge um and for me as a 17-year-old to be like what what is what is going on? Um so I, I just went with it because I, I had never seen my parents this miserable. I was like, I have to do right by them in some way for them to stop feeling this this pain. Um, so then, I mean, by then I had I had sort of decided to go to NYU because my sister was there, and that was also another element of it because they, my parents, would feel better about me going to NYU um, because my sister could be there as sort of this chaperone figure. Um, yeah, went to eight sessions of this um, conversion therapy. And what was that? What was conversion therapy like, Bowen? You know, it was actually pretty banal overall, which which kind of surprises people. Like, it wasn't like the melodramatic thing of like electrodes or whatever. It was it was it was it was me and and, if, and the people who who do experience that. Um, gosh, I mean, there's. I, I, I'm very lucky that I, it, it, that's not what that was for me. Um, but what it was for me was this easing into this like framework that um, same-sex attractions are like un, 
uncouth or um, should be undesirable or um, are morally sort of wrong. And, you know, the first few sessions were, were pretty standard, just resembled talk therapy resembled even like even the therapy that I have now I'm like oh this is remarkably similar to what I my first experience with this which was under these very wild pretenses um but then by the fourth or fifth session it he'd started to sort of work in this thing of like okay let's go through one by one or or as specifically as you can like instances where you felt attracted to another man and I was like wait, I haven't cataloged all of them like individually, but okay, we'll start with this. And then he would just kind of try to link those um, moments to some physical sensation, like physical sense memory. And then, and then it was, it would be kind of leading questions to get me to say that I was attracted to another man because I was feeling bad about myself or because I was in physical discomfort or pain or something. And it was just sort of this like very insidious way of like trying to tell me or internalize this idea that like being gay is to, to, to ha- that your sexual preference is a, is a result of your external circumstances. Mm-hmm. So sort that's of a strange association. And so you go through all these sessions for your parents because mm-hmm. you love them. And as you said, you'd never seen them so miserable. And did you come home and say, or did you kind of let sleeping dogs lie, head off to NYU and just hope that time would acclimate them and make them become more accepting? It was the latter, but then even at the back, there was like a one inch tall person in my head that was like, maybe this, maybe this works, maybe this works. Maybe you go to NYU and everyone tries to reinvent themselves in some way when they go to college. Um, I was like, maybe you try this on for size being straight. And so um, went to NYU my freshman year. I'm, I, I move in with my sister, um, did not do that, did not do the dorms, moved in with my sister and thought, wow, okay. I mean, she is the room next to mine. She knows everything that I am doing and that's sort of an that's sort of an an interesting experience for me to like go to college and like still f- and feel like I'm with family and um it was but it was a great time i mean like she and i still say like i mean we were great roommates we were great roommates did was she accepting though of of the fact that you were gay or i mean how where did she come down on this she was put in this very tough spot to like mediate both sides mm-hmm. um just to just to tr- truly be someone who had to like communicate between me and my parents, whether it was because of a language barrier or a cultural barrier or, or whatever, like this is where this person's coming from. And, and I think both sides, both me and my parents were upset at her for different reasons at various points. I mean, I remember one time um, she knocked on my door and sort of slipped um, or she knocked on my door and she handed me this like book that was written by some like conversion therapy and quack and I was just like I don't want to read that um and then she was like well it would mean a lot to mom and dad if you did and I remember being very upset at her for a long time um for that specific incident um so she was kind of she she, was trying to keep the peace in the family totally and she and like that's its own sort of 
emotional labor that like I still haven't fully like not appreciated, but like I, I haven't fully like thought about that in a way that like, oh God, like she was in her own tough spot. She was in her own personal hell with when, when that whole situation happened. It wasn't even like a this side versus that. Um, it was like my parents sort of expressing some care and love for me because they had been socialized to think that being gay was um, going to set me back. It was going to um, put me in danger and all these different things. And they were just, they were being protective. Um, and I think, and it's, it's hard, it's still hard to parse out um, where that protective instinct starts and where the homophobia ends or, or the other way around, you know? Right. So. And how are they feeling uh, was there a moment where uh, you felt like your parents kind of adjusted or accepted and said, this is, you know, because it's interesting. I've been writing a memoir and I I was looking back at how we covered Matthew Shepard. And then I interviewed Jim Obergefell, who was mm-hmm. the plaintiff in the Supreme Court case that legalized same-sex marriage. And it's actually really unbelievable how far we have come. It's something that we don't really, it just in the last 25 years uh, or Mm -hmm. more when it comes to, you know, accepting gay relationships, et cetera, and really celebrating gay relationships. And how are they feeling today versus, you know, you're 30. So this, we're talking about 12 years ago, right? Or 12 or 13 years ago. Have they kind of reached uh, at least... uh, maybe an uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> uh, acceptance or how are they feeling about it now? I think they have reached it. Um, I mean, yesterday, I mean, yeah, again, I'm 30. And so uh, naturally they're thinking about grandkids for me. I mean, kids for me. And so they're like, how would you go about that? And I'd be like, well, if I wanted, if I wanted kids, then this is how maybe I'd, I would think about this or that. And they, and they were like, Okay, interesting. Oh, and then I brought up um, I brought up uh, B.D. Wong, um, who who um, I'm I'm close with and who is um, who who I've worked with very recently, and and he and I have this very good sort of mentor mentee bond that I'm 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 very grateful for. And I brought him up, and I was like, you know, he's had this center. He just naturally came up in conversation, and then. Um, slowly, sort of revealed that he was gay because I don't think my parents really realized, and then. I was like, and he has this kid who's in college now. And then my dad was like, he was married to a woman. I was like, no, um, it, you know, he, 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 he got a surrogate and, and all this stuff. Um, and then he was like, interesting. So he, I mean, he's, he's, he's adjusting to it. It's not fully inconceivable to him that this kind of thing happens in the real world. But, um, the mo- if there was a moment, this also involves my sister because I had done this, interview with Maureen Dowd for the New York Times, my first season on the cast of SNL. And she had sort of, in her way, I mean, she was just Maureen Dowd. She's great, but she got, she teased out of me these details about the conversion therapy. And I hadn't ever shared that in that, on that scale or in that public way before. And it was just like in the newspaper, it was on the Sunday Times. And it was just like, whoa, this is crazy. And I, my, my first thought was my parents are going to be upset in some way that they're that um something this personal is being aired out and that this is something they're they're going to have to go into work the next day and their coworkers are going to are going to know that this is something that they did or you know 
uh, or whatever. And then my sister called me uh, the day after that piece came out and she was like, that profile came out and she was like, you know, mom and dad read the profile and actually they, I think they've come to some better understanding of like what that time was like for you. And that they've, I think, I think they're moving closer and closer to just like full on acceptance. And I was like, wow, interesting. I mean, that really surprised me that that, that was their takeaway rather than thinking, what does this mean for me? They, they were thinking or the we're whole so time. embarrassed or, you know, or yeah. we, we're ashamed that we put our son through that. Right? right. You know, on so many different levels, they could have had reactions. Absolutely. But instead their, their parental thought was, oh, what is, what did this mean for our son? And I, I mean, I just, that kind of surprised me in, in, in a very sort of meaningful way. Um, so I, th- I think it's, it's, it's been very incremental um, over the past 12 years and probably like the way that it's been sort of collectively incremental um, for everybody. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, the grueling SNL audition process and that viral Titanic sketch. I think my publicist was very clear. I'm not here to talk about the sinking. That's right after this. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. What did you major in at NYU? I was a chemistry major. Oh my god! I was, <laughs> what? I was I was I was a ba- I was a BA in chemistry and not a BS. Most of my, I was a bachelor in arts and chemistry. I mean that. Just, Wait, how I, is that? I was I was I, so I was on the pre med track. I was thinking, you know, I I, I got to hang up the comedy dream because I was doing like short form improv in high school and going downtown and like, you know, I, I this this one of my favorite teachers who I still keep in touch with sort of uh, was the sponsor of the improv group in high school was the assistant director at the theater downtown. And so like he was my gateway in and um, just was that kid. And like on college tours, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. So do you guys have an improv group here? Like I was that, 
that guy um for better or worse but then i I go to nyu and i kind of put all my social eggs in one basket which was to get on the improv group there because um you know it was very it seemed very seamlessly integrated into the the comedy theaters that are here in new york at the time that were here in new york at the time and i thought nyu is going to be great because I'm going to have all these friends who like comedy as much as I do, who have like, you know, watched this many episodes of the Simpsons or Seinfeld or, you know, like just like Matt TV, SNL, all of that. And then I did find those people. And then throughout college, I was on this improv group with all of these Tish kids, these, these, these arts kids who right. are in, you know, studying film at and the TV. Tisch school at, yes. at NYU. Yeah. Yes. And I was sort of, the odd person for for not being you know a, a tish kid and i was like oh i'm a chemistry major but all of them were talking about going on to um you know do these things in the industry and i was like i guess i'll i guess i'll go to med school <laughs> and like by senior year i was like is this right and then uh, and then commencement at nyu was at yankee stadium and then i look around and all of my friends are like so excited for the next thing and um, not that this is uncommon, but I was, and I was just like, no, what is, what is, what is my life going to be? Like, I don't think I'm doing the right thing. And then I, I, I went in for my MCAT the second time, um, at, um, one Penn Plaza right next to Penn station here in New York city. And that was where the testing center was. And I, and I got to the, to the long, to the short answer section. And then as soon as, as soon as the cursor blinked, I thought back on this interview that I read Steve Carell do, where he talked about going, applying to law school um, when he was struggling. And he got to the, he got to the personal essay section of the law school application. And he thought, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I, and that interview just like flashed in my head when I was taking the MCAT and I was like, I can't do this. I cannot do this. And so I voided my test, left the testing center, went downstairs and just like, I think I cried. I think I really did cry because I was like, this is, this is something that I just, I, I can't follow through on this because I don't think I'll be happy. And so then um, spent like the next like seven years pounding the pavement. And so, yeah, I mean. Have you ever been, met Steve long... Carell and told him that story? I've not told him that story, but I met him when I was still a writer at SNL and he hosted, I think the, my fourth show. Well, you should show. have told him. I know, but I, I mean, I, I kept like my professional distance at the time. I mean, if, if I were to meet him again and if, if it felt right, I would, I absolutely would tell him that story and, and say that it, it really did kind of give me this model for like, okay, someone else has done this. Like I've, I'm not alone in this experience of doubting what I should be doing next. Um, and and sort of and going for this more secure path or something like there's this is someone who I admire who I love who who did this um, but yeah next time I see him I'll tell him you should you should <laughs> so you do this podcast with a friend from NYU yes, right Matt Rogers yes <laughs> look Matt there. oh I see you wow oh my Bowen look over there wow is that Ooh, culture uh, yes oh my goodness oh, wow yeah. las culturistas tell me about the podcast and kind of how that honed your skills for comedy. Yeah, I mean, um, I should say that I, I was doing mostly improv in college and after after college it was a sketch comedy. I dabbled in stand-up a little bit. I, I, I'm not, I'm, I consider myself a dilettante only when it comes to stand-up, but the podcast that we started with, um, with Matt uh, was just this very like one, it just seemed like this 
very low stakes thing where we would meet once a week and it was just an excuse for us to hang out and, and just sort of chop it up and talk about what was happening in, in, in pop culture. And then it sort of turned into this thing where like there was, it had its own sort of vocabulary and vernacular. People know what an I don't think so honey is. Honey so is basically funny. an I don't think so honey is uh, we take 60 seconds to rail against something in culture that we do not like, we think should be addressed fiercely and Loudly. I don't think so, honey. Magicians! Oh, don't you ever pull shit from behind my ear without asking me for permission. Yeah. I'm not gonna you know, slowly our, our, our listenership started to build. And now it's just this really, it's this really, I think, healthy <laughs> um, outlet for me to just be myself. Because I think, it's, I mean, so often everyone in the industry sort of spins out about where they're positioned, what they're doing, if they're doing enough. And I mean, for me to sort of just share this like one moment a week with Matt, um, who is on his own, just like kind of doing his own amazing things. And he's just such a brilliant writer and, and such a talented actor that I that I think, oh, gosh, I'm so lucky that I have this um this other sort of way to sort of like develop a sensibility and a voice and just know like what I am like about just in terms of like how I express myself because he's someone who has like puppy dog energy and I'm someone who has like, who's a little bit more coolly reserved and cat like. And, and, and I never, I never would have like known that about myself had I not had this like relational gauge to, um, to just sort of discover that. Yeah. And meanwhile, you're, you become a writer on SNL in what, mm -hmm. 2018, 2017, yes. 2018? 2018. And, um, so what was that? What was that experience? Tell me about getting the call and you're hired. I mean, how did you get that job, I guess? I mean, the, uh, SNL has done this in the, a lot in the past where they, they will hire writers out of the auditions. And I had submitted a tape in 2017 and thought they're never gonna hire me. They're not. They're, they're never gonna hire this effeminate Asian guy. Um, like I was like, there's no like, there's no lane for that there, and it's not. It's not like a role that they need to fill at all. So I was like, I'm just gonna have fun with this. So I did like, I threw a bunch of things at the wall, and I was just <laughs> like, as long as I think it's funny, I did like. My impressions were, you know, Machiko Kakutani and like <laughs> just the, the book reviewer at the New York Times and like who's never been photographed and yeah. never been like, I was just like, I don't. And it was just her like reviewing books and saying, threatening that she was going to punch Juno Diaz in the face or something like just crazy stuff. I was like, this is never going to get me in. And then somehow I cleared the hurdles to do the showcase live in front of uh, an audience at UCB and then did the screen test in front of Lauren and then got to this final meeting with Lauren. And then I remember it being so late and I was the last person he saw, I think. And he was just like, where are you from? And I was like, I'm actually, uh, I, I grew up in Canada. I, I speak a little French. And he was, and then I remember he turned to the producer that was in the room and was just like fully just kind of sidelined me and was just like, you know, the French have great books, don't they? And I was just like, okay, I did not get this job. So I left thinking I didn't get it. But then they called me back into audition again uh, that March of 2018. And I was like, okay, I have another shot at this. Let's go. Did that. They said, we're not doing a mid-season hire. Come back in August. I came back in August, auditioned uh, another time with a new set. And then I was like, either they take me or they don't. And then, at, and then at that time, they were like, we're not sure what to do with Bowen, but he... Um, but here's, his, here's this offer to hire him as a writer. So I wrote for one season. And I think... Had I not had that season to write, I wouldn't have, I would have, 
I mean, Lauren even said this to me on the call when he called me uh, a year later, uh, 2019 in September to, to tell me that he was moving me to the cast. He was like, he said that it was his plan because if he was like, he was, he was like, I knew you were going to be, he was like, I know you're going to be scrutinized and people are going to keep an eye on you in a way that's, they're going to evaluate you differently because of who you are. And so I would have done you a disservice if I had thrown you out there, like without a paddle, like if you didn't know how this place worked on a creative level as a writer, then, then, um, then you, you would have had a harder time. And I, and I think that, and I think he's right. Like I, that was really nice of him, Bowen. I mean, like he was, he, (laughs) he, he had your back. He did. I think he did. I really think he did. And, um, and I think he was right because by my second, by my, by my second week on the show as a cast member, you know, I, I got something on that I, that I'd written with some other writers, but I knew as soon as the show, as, as soon as the piece got picked to go to the show, I knew who to talk to for the costume. I knew who to talk to for the props. I mean, I, I just knew on a production level what to do, what my resources were. And I wouldn't, I, I would have had no idea um, if I had just been plucked out of, you know, the morass and thrown in and been Seems like, like every, figure it out. Every person, every cast member would benefit from writing on that show so. for a year, right? I think so. I think so. And and yeah, and there there are plenty of examples of people who did that. Um, you know, Sudeikis, Leslie Jones, um, T- Tina, know, right? Tina, Wasn't... yeah. Just I just I just a lot of people who have successfully modeled um, you know, a, a tenure there have 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 gone have have done that done that thing. I would be remiss not to talk to you about what's going on with so many Asian Americans and hate crimes and how horrifying this has been and how late as a culture we were to recognize this i think in many many ways uh asian hate and 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 these antiquated attitudes towards asian americans it's it's been a revelation and it shouldn't have been but but before i get to sort of the larger issue as someone who was the first chinese american cast member as someone who was openly gay on the cast what did you know, how did that inform the your humor or your feelings about being a part of the show? Yeah, um, I feel like, I mean, I kind of, I, I tell people that I came in at the right place at the right time. Um, and uh, I believe that the, Terry Sweeney in the 80s was the first, I think he was, I think he, he was the first gay cast member on SNL for a season and he, I think was like one of the only gay, one of the first gay people on primetime television or not primetime, it's SNL, it's SNL. So it's technically not, right, I guess. Right, but, right. but, um, but he, um, but was, what was one of the, like the few, if not only gay, gay people on TV. And then, um, there was John Milheiser in 2014, I want to say who was on the show as well. Um, but in my case, I came in and, and at that point there had been this legacy of queer writers and, um, and performers too, with 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 Terry and with John and with um, uh, Denitra Vance and with Kate already being so established there. I mean, I came in at a time when it was very, it was not an uphill battle for me to be like I, I need to prove something about uh, uh, what you can do at the show as as a queer person. And so I came in already having a relationship with some of the gay writers at the show, like James Anderson and Julio Torres. Um, and I just thought, wow, I mean, I feel some pressure, obviously I, I would be 
sort of dishonest if I was saying that I didn't, but I, 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 th I thought I have things I've the, I've sort of the wind at my back in terms of like doing this in a way that I think will satisfy me creatively and hopefully make other people understand where I'm coming from. Um, with the whole thing of writing there for a season, I thought, you know, at least, I mean, I mean, it goes back to what Lauren was saying, like he would have done me a disservice by like throwing me out there just with me not knowing how anything worked. And so, you know, I, I, I still am going through some weekly things where I think about how I should present myself as an Asian person on this TV show. But in terms of being put out there as an Asian person on the show and having the Asian person's viewpoint, uh, I struggled with that a lot when we, um, uh, about a month ago, uh, after the Atlanta shootings, um, we would come back from a hiatus and it was on people's minds, um, both outside of the show and at the show internally where people were like, I mean, it has to be addressed in some way. Right. So what do we do? And then, um, I just heard through different people at the show that like the hope was that I would write something for weekend update as myself to talk about what, what was happening. And I was for just, a, just for a little bit, just thinking, I don't think I want to do that. And it feels like something I'm sort of being saddled with. And I don't know if I'm in the place creatively to like make light of it and struggled with all these things. But then there was another, there's another um, writer at the show. We just hired this season, Celeste M. And they said to me, you know, if it's not going to be us, then who? Like, you know, if, if we don't, if it's not you and me writing this together, then like, who's going to talk about this on the show? And don't we feel like, wouldn't it be even weirder if the show didn't bring it up at all? And I said, yeah, I guess you're right. And so we wrote this piece. Across the country, rallies are being held to condemn the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes. Here to share resources on how you can help is Asian cast member Bowen Yang. Is that, um, is that my official title, Asian cast member? That's how you told me to introduce you. Yeah, I set your ass up. Feels good. You know, that led with some jokes at the top, but then kind of takes this left turn into this place of kind of despair and hopelessness that I think is honest, is authentically like what a lot of Asian people are feeling in this country, where they're like, there's no dialogue to have with someone if, if their instinct is to like punch a, a grandmother on the street, you know? So... It takes a turn into there, and then we, we sprinkle in some jokes, but then at the end, um, it gets strident. And that's sort of like a nice structure that Lauren, I think, likes and that, that's been on the show in the past when it comes to, like, you know, a grim story like this. In Mandarin, there's a cheer that goes, which basically means fuel up. I don't know what's helpful to say to everyone, but that's what I say to myself. And afterwards, I did feel like there was this, like, vulnerability hangover. It was the first time I was on the show, like, as myself, talking. Um, and I felt very vulnerable, but I felt like it was something that I was imperfect, but, like, it was something that I think I'm, I'm proud of just having it be realized from, like, the beginning of, of the week when I was like, I, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how to address this in a way that feels like it fits into the show. And then by the end of it, feeling like, okay, you know what? Like we did something and we did something that hopefully resonates or activates or motivates people in some way. Because the whole the whole piece was about how we sort of have to, as you know, a culture move past like the cursory acknowledgement of the problem and actually, you know, activate and do something about it um, in whatever way we can. And, and I think 
I think people understood that. As an Asian American man, I'm curious as as you saw this unfold, and I had a I had suspicions that this was going to happen when some of my friends who are in the medical community said that you know there were slurs hurled at them uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. I remember interviewing uh, an Asian American doctor and. You know, um, it it obviously just got worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And and witnessing this, uh, were you at all surprised? Were you appalled? How would you describe your reaction to to the the kinds of incidents that we were seeing uh, happen with greater frequency, or at least getting more and more attention? Mm-hmm. I feel like. Uh, I was sort of awakened in a way that a lot of not just Asian people were. Um, and I don't even, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know that it's, that we're all late to this realization. I mean, I think, I think it's, I think it's coming in on time because I mean, all of us have been socialized under this idea that like, I mean, gosh, I mean, my friend Joel Kim Booster, who's another Asian comedian said, um, you know, I get mixed up with another Asian person once a month pre-covid would be like even more but like just the the way that asian people are sort of like faceless in 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 western culture is like it just kind of it's 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 a symptom of the same disease where it's like you know we're we're all sort of dehumanized in a very quick immediate way and so like all my life i've grown up like having slurs sort of casually tossed off um at me about someone else um, when I was with an earshot, like all of these crazy things. And I, and, 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 and what's kind of terrible is that I was used to it and that none of this was surprising to me, uh, until very recently when it felt like there was a collective rejection of that from a lot of people, um, in the Asian American community where we all thought, wait a second here, <laughs> you know, because that, it's something yeah. you would become inured to in a way. Yes. Absolutely. And and isn't that like, and like, it kind of fills me with a little bit of shame to admit that, but I think that's true of a lot of Asians in this country. And for, and the, for, and for the people who like had that, who have realized this early on, who were, who were ahead of the curve, I think, wow. I mean, like truly like good for you. And I don't, I don't mean that sarcastically. I mean, like, I wish I had like been as developed as that earlier on, because now I'm finally at a place where I'm like, I can say no to this joke that's being written for me. Um, I can say no to a joke that's written for someone else, but that still sort of takes a swipe. I mean, you know, I've had to do that in multiple environments, um, just with among friends, professionally, you know, whatever. Like I, now it just feels like if I put a foot down when it comes to that kind of thing, then that it's more easily understood. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it'll change? Are you feeling that this heightened sensitivity and understanding and awareness of of this kind of prejudice and discrimination will will help alleviate it? I hope so. And I hope I, I mostly just hope that um the discourse sort of turns away from like the actual hate incidents. Um, and I think, there, I think there's some collective shift right now, at least like amongst, among people I talk to where we're like, okay, so 
we understand where the hashtag comes from of stop Asian hate, but, um, but it should be more about protecting the well-being of Asian people um, in the country. It's, you know, because if we're centering the aggression that's being directed towards us, then I don't know if there's ever going to be a counter gesture that's going to be strong enough to like push back against that in a way that eliminates it. It shouldn't be about eliminating. I mean, ideally it should be about eliminating that kind of uh, volatility towards the Asian community. But I think the way to actively prioritize everyone's well-being and for everyone to be in a better position is just to make sure that we're all taken care of just on like a, on a material level, emotional level, you know, all of that. So that's like, that's like the thing that I hope for and that I foresee maybe happening is that we all kind of, we, 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 we take it out of the terms of like a hate crime. It's more about, it's not about like the prosecutorial way of like making sure people are brought to justice for whatever they do, but it's just about making sure that like people down up and down every class in the Asian community are just sort of solid. I know we have to wrap it up. I could talk to you all day, but um, just a couple of things I wanted, wanted to ask you about. Where did you come up with the crazy iceberg skit? Next week marks the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. Here to explain his side of the story is the iceberg that sank the Titanic. Hi, Colin. Hi. Thanks for having me. This is always a really weird time of year for me. Well, thank you for being here. And just tell us, what was going through your head that fateful night? Thank you for that question. Um, you, you know what, Colin? That was a really long time ago. Um, I've done a lot of reflecting to try and move past it. It's one very small part of me, but there's so much going on beneath the surface that you can't see. Right, yeah, like an iceberg. Yeah. Is that your favorite you that you've done so far? It was probably the most fun on a performance level, just being in the room and just having it um, play. But uh, it was Anna Dresden's idea. She's one of the head writers at SNL now. And she texted me back in February. She said, for the April 10th show, maybe you play the iceberg that sank the Titanic. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And she was like, oh, I don't know, never mind. It's, we'll, 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 we'll get to it in April. Like she had this idea months in advance because she was like, "We sh- it should be somewhat timely because of the anniversary of the sinking, which is in mid- which is in the middle of April, and I go, okay, maybe. And so we let we let it rest for a couple months, and then the week of that show, I texted her on Monday. I was like, "What do you think of that iceberg idea again?" And she was like, "I completely forgot about it." But then we started riffing on it. We're like, "Okay, he's there to promote his album. He's there. He doesn't want to talk about it. He's really grown since then. Um, all these things." And I mean, the entire time. You have to understand, Katie, the entire week, both of us looked at each other multiple, multiple times and we're just like, this is never going to be on TV. Like, how will we ever make this work? And we would just cackle, like laugh hysterically to each other. Like, what are we doing? This is nuts. Down to like Saturday at like 6.30 p.m., us just looking at each other being like, what are we doing? This is going to get cut immediately. Like, it's just such a big swing. And like, why would Lauren ever think that this would be, that this would make any sense? Then we did it at dress rehearsal and it, and it did better than we thought. We were like, oh, okay. And then Anna comes to me afterwards and she's like, I, Lauren liked it. And I was like, all right, I guess maybe we do it. And then finally the picks come out for the, for the air show 
It's in. I go, wow, I guess we're doing this. And then somehow the air audience was even more on board than than the dress audience was. And I was like, this was just, I mean, every star aligned for this. And I just can't, I still, I still can't believe it happened. Why are you attacking me? You said you would be my Oprah Colin. I never said that. Well, someone did. And that, and you also had that Harry Styles uh, oh. skit that was <laughs> never going to see the light of day until Harry Styles, like, I don't know, you completed him or something, Bowen. He exhumed it from from the grave. And I mean, that was another moment where I turned to him and Cecily Strong, who was with me in that sketch. Uh, I co-wrote it with Julio Torres, this 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 wonderful comedian friend of mine who was a writer there for, for several years. But I turned to both of Cecily and Harry and I was just like, this can't be on TV. It's, I mean, but that's when it's the most fun is that like things that you never think could could come to pass on the show end up happening and then they have this weird life of their own afterwards that that's the most delightful part of the whole job it must make you question your judgment though like if you think oh this is gonna kill and it bombs and this is the strangest thing ever and it becomes a viral sensation i mean yes the inverse happens all the time things that you're like so sure about that just no one else is on board no one else is even remotely into it. And then it's, and then it's the other way around so many other times too. And that's, that's sort of the best part of the job is just not ever getting it down to an actual science. I, because I, because even writers at SNL don't know what they're doing, obviously all the time. You have done so many things. I mean, is there something that are you just going to continue to enjoy growing as a performer on SNL? I know you've done you do stand up still, even though I know you, you consider yourself a dilettante, but you still kind of play in that space a little bit. You did the Aquafina stuff. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you sort of had to chart out the next five or 10 years, is there, are there things you want to do? Are there kind of moments that you want to seize or opportunities that you see yourself doing? Would you like to do more films, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I feel very entertainment tonight right now, but I'm just I curious. Love it. I I feel like to to get this side of Katie Couric is is actually <laughs> I can't believe I'm I'm on the receiving end of this, <laughs> but I um I don't know I would love to. I mean, there's, there's this there's this phrase that I repeat all the time from Tony Hale um from Veep and Rust and Development. Love Tony Hale. It's fantastic. Um, but I think someone asked him, I forget where, but someone asked him what his best sort of career advice was. And he said, um, especially when it came to comedians or comedic actors, he said, uh, instead of investing in a career, instead of thinking about in terms of investing in a career, think in terms of investing in a community because it's the people you come up with that sort of make it such a good experience. And I, I, th- I think I'm very lucky to feel like I'm a part of a community among people who, you know, I would do like Brooklyn bar basement shows with, you know, five years ago. And now they're, they're in movies and they're writing for shows and they're doing all these incredible things. And so I just want some, I I mean, I honestly want to think of some way to like build out this like way of developing some community around comedians and especially queer ones, especially Asian ones, whether together or separately, um, that just like is able to come up to the, uh, come up together because I was talking to B.D. Wong about this and he was telling me like, you know, you 
he's talking to me. He was like, you are probably the subject of, of a lot of these discussions where it's like, why did it take so long for an Asian person to be on SNL or, or a fully East Asian person to be on SNL? And his theory is that like, there is just no inevitable process for developing people who come out of certain programs or there's no educational process. There's no um, process that like takes you from one end to the other that is as obvious as it is um, for, for certain other people. And so I'm like, oh yeah, like maybe there's a way to like build that. Um, and so, I mean, I obviously want to do the fun, the fun stuff, like be in things, but I, but I think that's like the, that's like the sort of community, community investment that I think I want to like try and help with is just to make sure it happens more often. Well, Bowen, thank you again. And again, I'm congratulations for all your success. I'm super happy for you and and not only enjoy watching you, but really, really enjoyed talking to you. So thank, thank you, you so for much, all Katie. your time. Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. Thanks for facilitating it. Love me some Bowen Yang. His podcast, Las Culturistas, is in the iHeart family. So go check it out. And I might even be a guest this fall. I'm very excited. And if you missed any of those SNL clips we referenced, we'll link to them in the description of this podcast. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeart Media and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at katiecouric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.